We are reading together this evening in the scriptures of the New Testament uh, from Paul's letter to the Romans, page 1135 in the Church Bible, uh, Romans uh, chapter 8, and we commence our reading at verse 18. Uh, Romans chapter 8, and we commence our reading uh, at verse uh, 18. Page 1135 in the Church Bible, Romans 8 and verse uh, 18. Paul writes here uh, about the sufferings, uh, the sufferings that we as Christians uh, experience. We are part of a broken, sinful, fallen world, though we have been saved by grace. We're not wrapped uh, in cotton wool. Uh, we're not put away in a safe zone from suffering. But Paul writes about suffering here and how the Lord is at work through our sufferings and is also at work through what happens in the realm of nature. So page 1135, Romans 8 and verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. 
that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Now the quotation, for your sake we face death all day long, uh, is significantly from Psalm 4. In our prayer meeting this evening before our service, uh, we were taking time to pray for, to give thanks for the witnesses. Um, Psalm 96, page 602 in the first half of the Bible. Uh, page uh, 602, Psalm 96. Um, and we were looking at this psalm together this morning. Uh, we have covered already verses 1 to 6. And now this evening we want to cover the second half of the psalm from verse 7 through to verse 13. Uh, we noted this morning that this psalm is a psalm that is um, um, part of a cluster of four psalms, 96, 97, 98 and 99. And each of these psalms sparkle with the truth that the Lord reigns. The Lord Jesus, our Saviour, reigns. He is King of kings. He is Lord of lords. And this morning, as we looked at verses 1 to 6, we noted from verses 1 to 3, the King's summons. His summons uh, to praise. His summons to proclaim. And that's a summons that comes to the church, but it's also one that spreads out to the earth and the nations and the peoples and the world. 
And then we saw in verses 4 to 6 why it is that this Lord issues this summons to the whole world to praise him and proclaim him. It is because of his supremacy, the king's supremacy. Uh, He is um, great uh, Lord and he is great above all gods and he is to be feared above all gods. We saw that there are not many gods. There are not various ways or a number of ways to get to heaven or to be saved. There is, as Paul writes to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5, one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so in the same way as there is uh, one cure uh, for um, an illness um, and uh, we, we um, people take that cure and they receive that medicine to the exclusion of other medicines. So there is one medicine for our sin and that is the Lord Jesus Christ and we take him to the exclusion of all other gods. Uh, Not just the the gods of the big religions in the world, but the gods we saw that are in our hearts, material things and family and the things around us. The God of pleasure that some people worship and serve. Uh, But that will not bring salvation. There is only one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Well, so much by way of introduction. Let's come now this evening to verses 7. Uh, to nine, and we want to note and think this evening first of all about rendering the king his due, or render the king his due. Uh, that's the first thing we want to see uh, this evening. Those of you who are here this morning will note and remember that in the opening section of the psalm, we noted how the verb sing occurs three times in verses one and two a. And it takes the form of a command, and it is in the plural. Now, all are to sing. Well, now as we come into the second half of the psalm, the psalmist writes in exactly the same way. It's significant how um, the um, human authors of Scripture, they didn't just throw words on a page. They thought, they planned, And they were guided most of all, of course, most important of all, by the Holy Spirit. And so we have exactly the same pattern now in verse 7 and 8a. But the verb now is not sing. The verb that is repeated three times is the verb ascribe in the NIV. It's actually very simply put as give. Give. So we're told... Uh, Verse 7, ascribe or give to the Lord, uh, O families of nations, ascribe or give to the Lord glory and strength, Uh, ascribe or give to the Lord the glory due to his name. Give, give, give. It's underlining what is due to the king. From us, from his people. 
And again, the verb is in exactly the same form. It's in the plural, as was sing. And it is a command. And it specifies the response we're to make to the Lord in his salvation and in his supremacy. If he is who he declares himself to be. If the Lord Jesus has done what he declares himself to have done in the fullness of scripture. Then the only fitting response for men and women and boys and girls throughout the earth to make to him. Is to fall down before the king in worship and in service and so the king is due our worship and the king is due our service in the same way as in the first section we were to praise him and proclaim him and this response is required not of the Jews only here but also of the Gentiles. Remember we saw this morning the phrase the earth, the nations, the peoples, the world. I think if I remember right, when you total all of this up, it's, it's about 13 times. There's this universal aspect brought to this psalm. Uh, and all peoples are called to render to him his due. Look at the second half of verse 8. Here's what it means practically. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Come into the courts of the king. Come with an offering. And when you come into the courts of the king and you come with an offering, what do you do? Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And of course, first and foremost, that's the beauty of his holiness. His perfect holiness. But then it should also be the beauty of our acquired holiness. The holiness that we are acquiring and working out in our lives as a result of our salvation. Tremble before him, all the earth. Can you think of anyone going before the queen of our land who's not nervous if they're being presented to her, if they're getting an honour? And in the same way, as we come before the king, we're to tremble before him because of his greatness and his glory. And in those days, if you had the honour of coming before the earthly king, you did not go empty-handed you didn't go empty-handed and so for example we read in um, Samuel of uh, the queen of Sheba and she comes to visit Solomon and she believes that Solomon is the wisest and the wealthiest king of the earth in her day and what are we told she brought she brought an offering into his courts. She brought an offering that was spices, we're told very much gold, and precious stones. That was her offering. 
And so as we come before the king in worship, we are to bring an offering. And the offering that Christ the king requires of you and me, it's not a sacrifice to cover our sin. He himself became and is the offering for our sin. Remember Hebrews 10 verses 5 to 10. When he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. By that will we have been sanctified. We've been made clean through the offering of the body of Jesus once. So there's no offering that you or I can make or bring to God to cover our sin. Jesus has made that offering to cover our sin. And if you're not a believer tonight, then his command to you is to turn to him and to trust him and to take him, to take Jesus as the only offering that can cover, the only sacrifice that can cover your sin because he died on the cross for the sins of his people so the offering Christ the king expects of us it's not a sacrifice to cover sin the offering he deserves is our worship our worship where we come together and we exalt his name, and we do exactly what is said in verses 7 to 9. We give him, we lift him up, and we uh, uh, acknowledge his strength and his glory and his holiness and his majesty and his dominion and his power forever and ever. But that is not our only offering. Our offering is not to be a few psalms and a few prayers and an hour on the Sabbath morning and an hour on the Sabbath evening. Our offering is not a tithe or what we put in the collection plate. It's much, much more than that. Our offering is ourselves. Your offering to the Lord not just your worship, yes, that's um, foundational, but then it is yourself. That's the offering that we are to bring. We're to bring an offering and come into his courts to worship. We bring the offering of ourselves. No one puts this better than the Apostle Paul in Romans 12 verse 1. I beseech you, Brethren or brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies. It means yourselves. A living offering or sacrifice. Holy, acceptable to God. That is your reasonable service. That's the only reasonable response to make to this Lord Jesus who has saved you. 
to be an offering to Christ our King. Uh, our response has to be, here I am, or here am I, I am yours, I am yours, I'm not my own, I was bought with a price, I belong to you, I am yours to use whatever way you choose. Young people, that's how you're to think about your vocation in life. Not what do I want to do. Not how much money do I want to earn. Not where do I want to live. But Lord here I am. And I am yours to use whatever way you choose. I am yours to send to whomever you want to reach. I am yours to suffer whatever reproach the world heaps on me for your name. Lord, I am yours to endure whatever trials you ordain for my life. Lord, I am yours to proclaim your salvation. Lord, here I am. I am yours to pray and to labour for the advancement of your kingdom in Fergus. David, when he was speaking about worship and service, put it like this. Nor will I offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. And as we come now to think about how this applies to our lives, we're asking ourselves the question, am I giving to the king his due? His due. Am I giving to him the worship that is due to his name? Am I giving to him the service that he deserves? Have I put myself, my life, my gifts, whatever I am, who I am, into his hands? Or are you giving him what costs you nothing? Are you giving him the leftovers of your life? The leftovers of your day. When you've done 50 other things and you're falling into bed, you'll read a few verses and mumble a few words. It's the leftovers of the day. Are you giving the Lord the leftovers of the Sabbath day? Are you giving the Lord the leftovers of your energy and of your money? When you or I are tempted to give Christ the fragments, the leftovers, we need to remember, he did not give the fragments of his life to save you, to save me. He gave his flesh he gave his blood. He entered hell to save you, to save me. He sweated great drops like blood. He endured the cross to save you. He bore the taunts of the world to save you. He experienced God forsakenness to save you. How can you, how can I, without being ashamed, give any less? than all in worship.
and all in service back to him. That's the king's due. Are we giving him his due? But then secondly this evening, or if you're following from the sermon this morning, this will be the fourth point in the psalm. Rejoice in the king's coming. Rejoice in the king's coming. Verses 10 to 13. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world also is established. It's on a solid foundation. It's not shaking. It's not going to burn up because of global warning, warming. It's not going to be blown apart because of nuclear warfare. It shall not be moved until God gives the word. And then it will be moved in his way as he has revealed in his word. Not in man's way. You see the Lord Jesus is not uh, what we had in Ireland in the 19th century. An absentee landlord. Absentee landlords were English landlords. Scottish landlords are probably also Julia. Uh, and uh, they had the land here. Uh, and uh, the, the peasants as they were. Uh, had little plots. Uh, and they farmed and they could they eked out an existence and these landlords they were away swanning around the place and enjoying the benefits uh, and looking after themselves and they had no concern about what was happening by and large by and large back in Ireland and the Lord Jesus is not an absentee landlord from his world who neither knows nor cares about what is happening in the world. You remember back to 9-11 as it's now called. The destruction of the Twin Towers. And there was a question asked in America after that event. Where was God on September the 11th? And the reality was, and the reality is... The Lord was on his throne. The Lord was reigning that day as much as on the day on which he rose again from the dead. And as much and as powerfully and as comprehensively as every day. Christ reigns personally. Christ reigns actively. Christ reigns continually. Christ reigns powerfully. He reigns over the nations. He reigns over nature. He reigns over man. He reigns over evil. And everything is unfolding according to his plan. He is in control, not man. Not David Cameron. Not Barack Obama or anyone else. No nation, large or small, averts his will. No queen or president is beyond his control. No army will topple his kingdom. The Lord 
reigns. The world also is established. And the Lord Jesus is not an Egyptian president who relies on an army for his authority to rule. He's not an American president or a British prime minister who relies upon the vote of the majority of people to rule this earth. The Lord is not a Zimbabwean president who relies on tyranny and and oppression to rule. The Lord Jesus rules the nations by the appointment of his Father. And he rules your life and my life also by the appointment of his Father. And his rule is a gracious rule. It's a rule full of compassion. Because now he rules the nations for what purpose? For the gathering and the perfecting of his saints. For the gathering of sinners into his kingdom. For the perfecting of sinners in his likeness. That is how Christ rules the world tonight. And that's how he has ruled the world and will rule the world until he comes again. That's his great purpose. Gathering that body of people that to us is the number of which is unknown. Called in scripture the elect. Given to him by the Father in eternity. For whom he died at Calvary. He's now gathering and he has been gathering them. And he will be gathering them until the Father says to him, Arise and return to the earth. That's what our covenanting forefathers described as. He is the mediatorial king. We're a church that believes in the mediatorial kingship of Jesus. That means we believe that Jesus is king for the purpose of gathering his people in salvation from the earth and the nations. At present... As King Jesus' role is that of Saviour, uh, is that of Saviour of the world. He is saving his people from all the nations of the world as the gospel is preached and as people in response repent and believe in him. But then the last sentence in verse 10 anticipates his future work. Notice the difference. His present work the nations is to gather, to save his people from the nations. But here now we move on to his future work. And what is his future work? It's that of the judge of the nations. The judge of the peoples. The judge of the earth. The judge of the world. Look at what it says in verse 10. He will judge the peoples with equity. Look at verse 13, the last sentence. He will judge the world in righteousness. The king at present does his work as he sits on the throne with his father in heaven. That's how he does his present work. To do his future work, his work of judgment, 
he will have to arise from his throne. He will do so at the command of his father. He will do so at the time appointed by his father, the time that the son doesn't even know. The time that no man knows. And he will return in person to the earth. And the clouds, we're told, will serve as his chariot. They'll be like a chariot bringing him and carrying him. When he came the first time, he came through the womb of a woman. When he comes the next time, he will come in the chariots of the heavens. And how different his second coming or his future coming of the king will be. The first time it was only his coming was acknowledged by only a few. A few shepherds. A few wise men. An Anna, a Simeon in the temple. And Elizabeth, a few others. When he comes again, every person alive will see him coming. As sure as every person, as we can see the sun in the sky. And every person dead will know he has come. Because the dead will rise from every place in the earth where they were buried. And whether alive or dead at his coming, everyone will witness his coming. The entire human race. From the very first man, Adam, to the most recently born baby will know he has come and will stand before him to be judged. To be judged. I don't miss the phrase at the end of verse 10. The NIV translation is a very good translation here with equity. Um, the New King James, I think, is righteousness at this stage. It's not the, uh, if that's not what the word means, it means here with equity. The word righteousness does come in later, as we'll see in a moment. But it's with equity. What's equity? Well, it's with fairness. With justice. Um, or as it is stated in verse 13, using a different Hebrew word, with righteousness, with straightness. There'll be nothing underhand about the judgment of Christ. Nothing unfair. Nobody will be able to say that was wrong, that was unfair, that was unjust. The judge of all the earth, as Abram said all those centuries ago, will do right. He will not show prejudice against some because of their colour or their background. He will not show partiality to others because of wealth or something else he will judge everyone on the same terms as we like to use the phrase in Northern Ireland there will be a level playing field he will judge verse 13 the peoples with his truth 
It's the last statement of the psalm. What's the truth that every last person will be faced with? It's that question, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And so the king is coming again. And when he comes again, that's the question. If the king came tonight, if he was to come now, who would you say he is? Are you ready for the king's coming? Would you say with Peter and John and James and the disciples of old, you are, can you say as you sit here in church tonight, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah of God, you are my Saviour, the one who lived for me, the sinless life that I cannot live, the one who died for me, that hell-deserving death that I deserve to die. You say that, you're ready. You can't say that, you're not ready. And tonight, you need to go to the king. You need to come into his presence again. As we talked about in verse 8. With repentance. And with faith. And give yourself to him. And begin to worship him. And serve him. But where does the aspect of rejoicing in the king's coming. Where does that fit in? Well that brings us. Then finally to verses 11 to 13 which bring out this aspect of rejoice in the king's coming. And it's very striking where this rejoicing is at present. Look at what it says. Is it to found among men at the present? Are people rejoicing tonight that Christ is coming? No they're not. People are denying that tonight. In the wider world. Or, or if they believe it tonight. Um, that he's coming. They're living in fear of it. But look at what the psalm says. There is a part of this universe. That is already rejoicing. At the fact that the king is coming. Verse 11. Let the heavens rejoice. And this tense that we, we have here, it can also, this let tense can uh, be translated as shall, the heavens shall rejoice, and let the earth be glad, let the sea roar, and all its fullness, look at it, just phrase upon phrase, it takes us back to Genesis 1 and the creation, the heavens rejoice, the earth be glad, the sea, you remember the sea, the Lord made the sea, the sea roar in all its fullness, and then the dry land, the field, let it be joyful, and then we read in Genesis chapter 1, when God made all of these parts of his creation, the heavens, the earth, the dry land, the sea, he filled them. And so it says, and all that is in it. Mentions particularly the trees of the woods. Look at what they will do. Rejoice before the Lord. For he is coming. And it's repeated. For he is coming. This is the response 
of the world of nature to the news that the king's coming to judge. The creation, the world of nature out there, is filled with excited joy. You know it's like boys and girls when you're going to go on holidays and you're counting down the numbers of sleeps. Five sleeps, four sleeps, three sleeps. It's an excited joy. And the creation, the animals, the fields, the plants, there's an excited joy at the prospect of Christ's coming. But why does the creation long for Christ's coming? Why is there this suppressed joy and excitement? Well, Paul gives us the answer. And that's why we read Romans 8. Because at present the creation, the world of nature, is subjected to futility. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. When man sinned, the whole of the realm of nature was placed under a curse by God. And so we have earthquakes and famine 